This morning, as we continue our Advent series, as we prepare our hearts for celebrating the first coming of King Jesus, Christ has come. Christ will come again. Today's passage reveals the sovereignty of God over all our life and all of history as it displays the reality of spiritual warfare and the ultimate victory of Christ's child and his people. Hear the word of the Lord. Revelation 12, 1-6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains. And the agony of giving birth... And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she, had a, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. Withers the flower fades, but the word of our God. Thank you, Cora. Good morning, church. Merry Christmas. I know what you're thinking. Wow, we're studying Revelation in Advent. I know. I'm surprised and excited as well. Uh, the truth is that all of the, the uh, Christmas nativity is pushed forward by supernatural breaking into the natural. The extraordinary breaking into the ordinary. It was angels that spoke to Mary and to Joseph and to the shepherds that moved the story forward. It was the Holy Spirit that burst into the ordinary and moved Elizabeth and Zacharias, John the Baptist and Mary. My prayer is that as we study scripture, we'll be able to set aside the cultural narrative that there is nothing transcendent, that there isn't a God in heaven and there isn't a world that we can't see. And that we will lay that narrative aside and embrace the true narrative of reality. There's a story behind the story. And you will, if we allow our hearts to sink into the hope that we read this morning, walk out of here deeper in your passion for prayer, more joyful in your ability to party, and more celebrative as you live the purpose that God has for you. So before we go to the word of the Lord, will you join me in going to the Lord of the word in prayer? Let's pray. God, you are faithful, and we ask that you would help us to see, help us to see. Jesus, son of David, open our eyes. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, the book of Revelation, it is written by the Apostle John when he was on the island of Patmos. This was not your spring break getaway, Patmos. Uh, he was in extreme exile, but he wrote a letter to seven different churches, so it's an epistle. It speaks of the reality of the future that is to come, so it's prophetic. It also talks about the end of the story, so it's apocalyptic. It's an apocalyptic, prophetical epistle. So it's super easy to study in 20 minutes, right? And God speaks to John as he writes to the church of his day and for all time. 
And in this section, we're going to study, we're at the beginning of three chapters that are held together by seven signs. Two signs we're going to look at this morning. Verse one, a great sign appeared in heaven. Verse three, and another sign appeared in heaven. Christ was born into a world to bring peace to a world that is at war. And these signs will point to the ultimate defeat of the devil, the real power and principality that we're up against, that John was up against. First, a word on signs. Signs always point to something. They're never a destination. You've never talked to anyone who went to West Texas, for instance, and said, you wouldn't believe our trip. We made it all the way to that big green exit 547 sign that said Big Bend National Park this way. It was fantastic. We loved going to see that sign. Nobody does that ever in history. Signs always point us to somewhere, to some place, to something, to someone. The signs that are in scripture are no exceptions. The context of John on the not-so-paradise island of Patmos. This is where they sent people that they wanted to suffer. Like uh, the story Count of Monte Cristo, Chateau d'If. It's where they send people they're ashamed of, right? They could have martyred John, but that was too easy and too convenient. People, Christians, that they wanted to suffer, they sent to Patmos. And on this island of suffering, John sees the vision of Revelation. In the midst of his struggle, he is reminded by these signs, and he reminds us that there is hope, that there is victory, that there is security, and that there's strength. Well, who we worship during Advent, Jesus Christ, the child that we read about in this passage, it will be deepened, our worship will, when we understand the greater conflict of this world, the cosmic and covenant realities that we're caught up in, we'll only then appreciate the deep reality of the victory of King Jesus. He's the winner, and when we belong to him, then we will understand what real worship is. The first thing that we see, there's two signs that point to three different truths. The first truth is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the past, he's sovereign over your present, and he is sovereign over the future. God reveals himself to John. This sign came to John in the midst of total suffering and struggle. An apostle, Jesus, I followed you around for years. You taught me. Jesus, I've been leading your church. I've been serving you. Why all this struggle? Why all this suffering? Why all this pain so great that I wish I could die? And Jesus doesn't offer solutions, but he offers a perspective. He rules in the midst of the suffering and the struggle of this world. The sign, the first one, is this beautiful woman, radiant. The woman clearly by all the imagery reflects the messianic community that is Israel. 
The imagery actually goes back to Genesis 37, or back to Genesis, yeah, 37, and the uh, imagery of Joseph's dreams, the birth pains of this woman that's in the image, the suffering she's experienced, it's this groaning, and groaning in two ways. First, it's a groaning and, and a longing for centuries and centuries that God's people had for the true king to come, the Messiah. But it's also a groaning and agonizing of the early church that suffered from persecution. Now, you remember last week when Alex talked about our pain in God's perspective is actually pregnant with promise and purpose. You remember that from last week? Whoa, yes, God. Alex spoke to us. Listen to it online. But this is what God does in his sovereignty. This cosmic sign of a woman that is giving birth. It, here, you want to see how beautifully it ties to God's sovereignty over history? You only have to go back to one of the most famous prophecies about Christ. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah speaks to King Ahaz and he says to them in verse 14, he says, this will be a sign to you. A virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. God has been faithful in the past. Mary was the virgin who came pregnant and gave birth to a son. So God is faithful in the present, ruling all things according to the counsel of his will. So God will be faithful in the future. He is sovereign and his promises will be fulfilled. God is faithful and he will win. Here's what this means, at least. Our despair and our discouragement and the darkness of this present evil age is not the final destination. We are going to a place where the fullness of God's promises will be experienced. We have hope. We have light. God rules. The groaning of this woman, the groaning of the imagery, it reminds us that we are not alone groaning for life in this fallen world. As Old Testament Israel groaned for Messiah, so Jesus came. As we join all of creation in Romans 8, groaning for the redemption of the sons of man, so Christ will return. He is king. He has come. He, was co he has come again. Why is it significant that this revelation is given to a people who are in a fallen world, struggling and suffering, because we've got to remember that we have hope. Do you believe that today? There is an enemy that wants to steal your hope. There is an enemy that wants to steal light. There is an enemy that wants to take life. And this is the story behind the story. There is a real battle. And the wars of this world only reflect the greater war and the reality between the dragon, the serpent, and the Lord, the baby child. That's what we see in verses three and four. 
another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. The, the imagery of this dragon comes from the Old Testament. Prophecies that are seen in Ezekiel and Daniel. It's not a surprise to John or any student of the Old Testament. The seven diadems that are on the heads of the dragon. A diadem is an extravagant crown. Like the crown on the Queen of England. A very beautiful set of jewels that crowns your majesty like the show The Crown. But the problem is that the dragon has no legitimate claim to any power or any authority. These are completely illegitimate claims of power. He uses things to try to pretend like he has power, but there's no real power in politics. He can, he can make sure that Caesars call censuses and pharaohs try to kill babies, but he's got no real power. There's no real power and policies for the economy. There's no real power in your piety, my piety, or our patriotism. There's no real power in our pedigree or our popularity. Those are all illegitimate claims to authority. And he comes in, swinging his tail, moving the stars, trying to convince you that he's got power when all he is is a little toddler throwing a tantrum. He's got nothing. The only one that has power and authority is the baby who grows up to be a king in Revelations 19, in verses 12 and 19 to 21. He wears a diadem. And he actually has authority and power. But the enemy, the dragon, he's a serpent. And he's been trying to kill from the beginning. Because he knows his power is limited. He knows his time is short. And since that first promise, that seed in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, when God said the offspring of this woman will crush your head, this dragon's been trying to kill. This is why he deceived Cain and Abel. And Abel killed Cain to get rid of that offspring and to crush the promise. This is why the Pharaoh in Egypt was deceived and deluded and decided that his best step was to kill all the baby boys born to the Hebrews. Kill! But you can't stop the promise. This is why the, the uh, King Artaxerxes of Persia decided that he was going to kill all of the Jews to eliminate any potential of this offspring coming and winning. But the enemy, Satan, has no power. God spared the Jews. This is why King Herod in Matthew 2 decided that he was going to kill all the baby Jewish boys that were born within two years to get rid of this offspring. But he couldn't. This is why the dragon that is the serpent sought to kill Jesus. And he did kill Jesus. But he did not know that the power of the promise for you to have hope in your suffering was that the son of God himself would suffer. 
He did not know that the power of us to have hope in death is for the Son of Man to give his life so that we know that death has no victory, that there is no sting in death, that there will be resurrection for those who belong. The devil, the dragon, who is the serpent, he sees the baby as a threat because he is the prince of this evil age. He wants to deceive. He wants to divide. He wants to derail God's plan and to bring death all across the land. He never gives up turf easily. If you've ever had a breakthrough spiritually, spiritually? <laughs> if you've ever had a breakthrough spiritually, or if you've ever seen someone or been someone that's found themselves on the brink of being free from addiction, free from uh, financial slavery, free from pornography, free from exercise or eating disorders, free from being a slave to what people think. If you've ever seen somebody right on the brink of that, then you know the turbulence that is in someone's life. Right before someone is entering into an atmosphere of a whole new life and a whole new world, things get turbulent because the enemy does not want to give up any turf at all. The battle is real. The war is on. And the ground that the battle is fought on is your heart. Death and darkness and despair. And many people would say that those things mark 2020. Uh, uh, the handiwork of the enemy. He wants to use our circumstances he wants to use our personal history, the history of our world, different countries. He wants to use our shame. He wants to use our physiological makeup of our brain and our body to drive things like despair and depression and anxiety. It's true. This week, a Pew Research poll came out, one of the most reputable polls in our country, and it said that in every single category of our culture, mental health has gotten worse. Except for one. Every ethnicity, every socioeconomic category, no matter your zip code, every political party, everyone, mental health has gone down. Except for one category. You know what category it was? People who worship weekly. It's the only category that was plus four positive in mental health. Why is that? It's not coincidence. Yes, mental health issues need counselors. Yes, mental health issues oftentimes need medication. I and my journey have taken both, counseling and medication in my time. Yes, mental health issues need community. We need one another. But we've got to be a people who don't factor out the importance of worshiping, reminding ourselves that there is an authority above what we see, that the light and momentary afflictions will give way to an eternal glory, that there is a king that is greater than the coronavirus. Our worship reorients our hearts. 
Our worship helps us understand and interpret reality. That there is an enemy that's greater, but there is a life and a light that Christ offers that we can find nowhere else. We're so easily deceived, aren't we? I mean, even just reading the story of the nativity, you get to Matthew 2 and and King Herod comes and, I mean, this guy is just ruthless in protecting power. He's so threatened by this little baby that's born in Bethlehem that he sends out people to kill all the little Jewish boys that were born in two years. I mean, that is heartless. There's got to be justice for that. And what's amazing about a biblical worldview in a culture that's crying for justice right now, we know there is only one place that justice is really accounted for. And that's in this baby who was born to die. But we have to ask, is Herod the real enemy there? Is Herod the real enemy? No. There's a story behind the story. And the, the enemy is going to win if you are deceived enough to think that the primary enemy you have is a person. Oh, my marriage is falling apart because of my spouse. They're my enemy. Well, work is hard because of my boss. My neighborhood sucks because of my neighbor. I stink because of myself. The enemy is not your spouse. The enemy's not your boss. The enemy's not your family. The enemy's not your friend. Your enemy's not a political leader. Your enemy's not a person. Your enemy is not yourself. Your enemy is the dragon that wants to destroy and take all of life, leading to death, and to put you in darkness and despair by flattening your worldview and removing the, removing the transcendence from the reality of this life where we're reminded that Jesus Christ is the one true king. Jesus doesn't give any middle ground for where we stand. In John 8, he says to religious people, you're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. He says it again in Mark, you're either for me or you are against me the language of Colossians. You are either in the domain of darkness or you are in the kingdom of God's beloved son through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The devil's been trying to consume this Christ child since the garden. But we have a picture of the end. He will fall from heaven. He will burn forever in the lake of fire. He has no real authority. He can't do anything. And this takes us to our third point in verses five and six. The victory, my friends, it's already won. The woman, it says, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Her, but her child was caught up to God into his throne. If you belong to Christ, you are in light. God is light. You are in love. God is love. You are in life. Jesus is life. The light of men. In Christ we have hope. In Christ we have healing. The baby becomes king over everything, even death. 
He was born to die so that in our death, we can live. We can hope for life. He rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, caught up in the heavens. And he says, the angels say to the disciples in Acts, exactly how you saw him go, he will come again. The imagery in the apocalyptic vision of Daniel 7, he will return on clouds. Every single ruler of every country, every power, every principality, every domain will bow their knee to the returning son of man. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. This is what Colossians 1 says, that Jesus is king over everything. All that is visible, all that is invisible, seen, unseen authority, principality, and ruler. The question is not whether or not Jesus is king. The question is, do we believe the promised child from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 66 and all through the Old Testament? David's greater son from 2 Samuel 7, 14, the king that would ruin rule forever. The anointed one from Psalm 2. I love Psalm 2. If you have a Bible, you can open it. It should be. If I was better prepared, it would be on a slide behind me. It's not. Psalm 2, how does, how does he respond to world that seeks to align against him? Why do the nations rage, says the psalmist? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up against God. Rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the anticipated Messiah. Listen to this. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords among us. That sounds like contemporary cultural commentary to me. How does God react? Is he scared? Is he worried everybody's teaming up against him? Is he insecure? Is he fearful? Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them to derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. With what? As for me, says the Lord, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he goes on to talk about the decree of the Lord's anointed. The title of this sermon, Aquí en Nieve la Corona. Who wears the crown? Do you know why the coronavirus is called coronavirus? It's because all of the virus has these little crowns all over it. Who wears the crown? Is it the virus? Does the virus really have the authority to shut down our world? Does it have the authority to close economies? to topple over governments? Does this virus really have the authority to to lead to despair and to darkness and to struggle? All casualties are cascading down. The answer to that is no, my friend, no. We're reminded in Job chapter one, verses one to five, that the enemy, the dragon who is the serpent, has no authority unless the Lord gives it to him at all. Satan will be cast down, defeated, crushed, and burned in the lake of fire forever. Just keep reading in this chapter and keep reading the scriptures. Jesus is the only one that wears the diadem. Aquí en lleva la corona, 
Jesus Christus. Jesus Christ. He's alive. He's on the throne. And Revelation 21.6 says he's making all things new. Even when it doesn't feel like it. Maybe especially when it doesn't feel like it. And the woman fled into the wilderness. There was a place prepared for her by God. This church, this woman that's persecuted, groaning for life, has protection and provision in the wilderness. In the same way that God redeemed Israel from Egypt and had them in the wilderness for a generation before coming to the promised land, he provided for them. He gave them what they needed every step of the way. The same way our groaning and our wilderness wandering will be met with the eternal reality of the promised land that is the new heavens and the new earth where there's no more sickness and no more sorrow, no more death, no more mourning, no more disease. The old order is completely passed away. The new order comes in Christ and his rule and in his reign. All that is evil, all that is unjust, all of those who organize themselves against the Lord's anointed, they will go into the lake of fire where they'll suffer for eternity. All of God's world will be made new. You can count on it. It is the consistent testimony of Scripture that everything that is sad will become untrue in Christ. There will be wilderness. There will be tribulation. There will be trials. But there is a king. There is victory. There is a promise. Death is not the final destination. Our despair can have light. Our difficulties are being redeemed and restored. God gives life through death. And this is why it's unbelievable to think about this. Think about it. This dragon wanted to take the life of the Christ child, and so he orchestrated all of history for him to suffer suffer more than anyone as an innocent man and unjustly to die and be put in a grave. But scripture says that Jesus did not have his life taken from him. He gave himself for us. He chose to suffer in this world so that you can have hope in your suffering in this world. He chose to die in this world so that you can have life in death right now. Already. Now it's not yet fully come, but this king who ascended and went to heaven and rules right now as we speak, his kingdom is advancing even while we worship him. Do you believe that? It's true. He will come back and everything that's sad will be made untrue. There's three takeaways that I really, really want you to have. First, will you please Please, please, please take your prayer life more serious. Please. God gives us prayer. This is how we engage in the story behind the story, the unre- unseen things of this world that don't seem real. Prayer is how we connect. Prayer is how we can move and find light in darkness and ask God to bring light. Prayer is how we, in our pains and our groaning can find peace 
where our anxieties can, can be cast upon the Lord, where we can grab onto hope, a handle from heaven that's given in Christ. Please, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Stop fighting one another. Stop it. Stop being cowarding to the false powers of this world. Stop it. Stop giving yourselves again and again, again and again to the false claims. Take your prayer life serious. Jesus wants to meet with you, the king. He loves you. Take time. Listen. Speak. Meditate. Secondly, will you freaking learn how to party? I mean, Christians are so despondent, so discouraged by the headlines of our world. Read the headlines of heaven, people. Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious. Death does not reign. Division will not last. Jesus is on the throne. He's making all things new. His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. Death is not the end. But the enemy, the dragon, who is a serpent, will surely meet his end. And all the injustices of this world will be gone. Read the headlines of heaven. Let's learn how to party. And finally, can we find our purpose in the Lord? I don't know why. I've got a major question for Jesus when I see him face to face. I don't know why he chose the church to be his primary vehicle of redemption, but he did. And if you belong to Christ, he's called you to be his ambassador. He has called you to this city at this time in your neighborhood to your neighbors to show the light in darkness, to show the love in a world of hate, to show forgiveness in a world of punitive relationships. He has called you to be life and to stand for life everywhere and at all times. I don't know why. Jesus called us to be his ambassadors, but he has. And we've got to return to him. We've got to let go of our perceived control. And as Paul says in Ephesians 5, to be imitators of God. Walk in love as he has loved us, and he gave himself for us. So we get to give ourselves to one another in this world. I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to sing another song together. And at the end... I'm going to invite people to receive prayer. Prayers for healing. Some people in here, you're right on that turbulent place of coming into a new world, a new existence, but your heart won't let go of the idols. Your heart won't let go of power. I want you to receive prayer. Some people in here, some people are really struggling with despair. Every week, every week, I'm talking to people, who are really struggling with depression. There's light and hope. Please reach out for community and help. We want to pray for you. After this song, before the benediction, we're going to invite you to pray. But right now, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you're on the throne. We thank you that you rule. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the promised child that defeats the enemy of this world. Lord, please forgive us for believing that our battle is against flesh and blood. Forgive us, Lord, for not standing in your promises. Please strengthen us with your grace. 
call us up into the story behind the story where we can really, really find what we're longing for in prayer, where we can learn to party, and we can find the purpose that you have for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and let's continue to worship through a time of song.